Good morning. You're awake. Okay, good. Well, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, as you just heard Nadia read. Uh, we've been saying that uh, Ecclesiastes is the, ref- the, the reflections of King Solomon, and he has these reflections in two broad categories. One category is under the sun, which we have said that is what you can observe, um, what can, you can see with your eyes. And his conclusion always is going to be that life is hevel, which we've been saying is this Hebrew word that means void, empty, meaningless, uh, something that you're grasping for, but you can't quite uh, obtain it. But then there's another category of observations where he is observing what's under heaven. So you'll see him shift back and forth from under the sun to under heaven. And when he's reflecting on what's under heaven, he reflects on a sovereign, good God who is superintending everything. You heard a very uh, poetic explanation of that in the beginning of chapter 3, and Tommy preached a really excellent sermon last week on this passage of there's a time for everything under heaven. So all these opposites, the time for birth, the time for death, the time for uh, mourning, a time for laughing, all these different things that, that are superintended by a sovereign and good uh, God. And I think most of us, as we kind of work through that and thinking through that, uh, we get to a point where we're like, okay, we're okay with it. Like, okay, there's going to be really awesome things, and we, we're really okay with that, but then there's going to be some hard things. And, and it, okay, if that's all kind of being fairly distributed among all human beings, uh, I'm okay with that. But then you start to think about that, and you start to realize, well, not all these things are being fairly distributed to all human beings. And I think there's a, there's a logic in the, in the flow of, of, of this text uh, that, that Solomon starts to think about that. He starts to think about injustice in the world. He starts to think about unrighteous behavior in the world, and he's thinking about that in light of a sovereign good God, and he's starting to have some, some dissonance there, some, some, some difficulty understanding how could this be. How could there be, in the place of justice, there's wickedness? In the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. And and it bothers him. And it should bother him. And it should bother us as well. And so we get to see his reflections on the meaning or how he makes meaning out of injustice and unrighteousness. So here, Ecclesiastes 3.16 is him declaring this. Thing that bothers him. He says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. So he's, he's seeing glitches in the system. And this is yet another glitch. He's seeing that where there should be justice, it's, it's a, being translated from the Hebrew word mishpat. And mishpat is a word that, that it's basically saying that everyone gets their due. Everyone gets what they deserve, which is why the word justice is used to translate it. Pastor Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, describes mishpat as this, giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection. Whether punishment or protection. Um, 
Sometimes the, the words restorative or retributive justice are used to describe these two parts of justice. That restorative sense is the protection part, where we see uh, people who are, are not receiving what is fair, what is equitable, they're, they're vulnerable to oppressors who are taking advantage of them. And we see that, and, and we see that's not fair, and we want justice. And in those kind of situations, we're, we're a- asking for restorative justice, that things would be made right in that way. But then there's also the retributive sense of justice, where there's been a crime committed, there's an offender, and they need to be punished for that offense. This is what's being talked about when we talk in in this country about the justice system. It's about retributive justice. So the justice system is everything from law enforcement to defense attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, judges, courts, juries, even, even the penal system, even the prison system, all of that is one big justice system that's supposed to be protecting the rights of individuals, but also meeting out punishment, retribution, retributive justice for the breaking of laws. We've been hearing cries for both of these justices in the Breonna Taylor uh, killing that we've heard a lot of news about in the, in the last week. There are cries that the officers who, who shot them would be tried, convicted, punished. And a grand jury of, of citizens, as they looked at the details of that case and looked at the laws of the state of Kentucky, they declared this week that it, it was not an illegal act and that no one would receive any kind of retributive justice. Now, Federal investigators are looking into that. Federal courts are getting involved. So that, that, that conversation is not uh, over. But it does help us to understand retributive justice. But it's also really hard to hear because this horrible thing has happened. This innocent person has been killed. It is wrong. And we want there to be justice. But not only retributive justice, we want restorative justice. We want that wrong to be made right. Well, this is the kind of justice that's dealt with in a civil suit. And so there was a civil suit, a wrongful death suit uh, against uh, the police department for the the, the killing of Breonna Taylor. And they were awarded $12 million for that civil suit. And so that civil court was saying, yes, there's something that's happened that is wrong. Maybe not illegal, they're not, they're not deliberating on illegal, but they're deliberating on wrong. And they said, this is a wrongful death, and so we're offering this $12 million as a restoration of that wrong. Now, that does not bring her back. That does not bring everything back to zero. But that is the idea behind that kind of a, a wrongful death suit is uh, restorative kinds of, of justice. Now, this... This kind of just world where, where protection and punishment is getting meted out appropriately is brought about through righteousness. And you notice those two words are together, justice and righteousness. And they're oftentimes together in the Old Testament. They're used to, as, as a little couplet of, uh, because they work together. And, and the reason they work together is because the way you bring about justice is by doing what's right. 
Right? I mean, this is the hope of, of all the protests about justice, right? It's not just about raising awareness about injustice, but that righteous acts would happen as a result of those protests. And so there, there's, there's the, the need to do what is right in order to bring about a, a, a just society. Uh, one of the conversations being had from that case is the outlawing of no-knock warrants, right? It's, it's like a, a law that says it's legal to bust down the door and, and, and not announce, hey, the police are coming. And, and so there's, there's a lot of conversation about, well, that, that's not right. That, that's, that's not just. It needs to be cha- that law needs to be changed, right? And so that the laws would be righteous so that those laws now bring about a society that is just. Now, Solomon reflects on justice and he reflects on righteousness and the lack thereof. He gives us the perspective of what's there in its place, in the place of justice and righteousness, and what's in its place is wickedness. And he uses the same word for, for both, uh, that, that in the place of justice is wickedness, in the place of righteousness is wickedness. Now, when we think of wicked, we think of evil, like the wicked witch, and it does have that sense. There's no doubt that there, there's a, a sense of wrongness that, that, that's being done. But there's also a sense in which something's being done that is an affront to a holy God. It's not just a wrong to my, my fellow human, but it's a wrong uh, that's against the righteous and just God. This is why he immediately begins to speak of God in verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So think about what he's doing here. He, he, he's looking at the injustice in the world, the unrighteousness in the world, and then he says, I said in my heart. <laughs> so he's kind, of, he's kind of talking to himself. He, he's, he's preaching to himself. And he's, what he's preaching to himself is, there's going to be a time for judgment. A time for judgment at the end of all days. And notice he, he's using this idea of a time for something. Like he, he talked about that earlier, remember, in the chapter where he's like, there's a time for birth, a time for death, a time for mourning, a time for dancing. And here he's saying, and there's a time for judgment. There's a time for judgment under, under heaven. Now, how does this help him think through this idea is that, hey, this, there's injustice and there's unrighteousness in this world. Well, one, day, one, one reason is because as he thinks about that judgment, he knows that that judgment is going to be absolutely perfect. There is coming a day when a perfectly righteous judge is going to bring about perfect justice. And that is going to come at the judgment seat of God. Notice he says they're going to, he's going to judge the righteous and the wicked. So he's going to judge the righteous person, meaning he's going to reward the righteous person that did everything right. He may even uh, probably offer reparations for what is that they've been treated unjustly. So that's a judgment, but also judging the wicked. And so that's, 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 a, that's more retributive, cosmic retributive justice. That the wicked have done, done these things, not only against their fellow man, but against a holy God. And so we hear of, of that restorative, retributive justice, the end of all days from God, 
And we started to think, well, that's a relief. That, that God is going to bring justice to this world. That, that he's going to bring retributive justice to the murderer, to the rapist, to, to the money-grubbing corporate bigwig that steals people's life savings for those who lie and those who lust and those who are lazy and those who reject the worship of the one true God. But then as I start to think about that list, I start to think, that, that sounds more like me. It's, it's not just these, these really bad people over here that I like to put in that category and then put me in the righteous category, but instead I start to realize, no, I, I'm wicked too. And then we start to think, well, maybe this judgment thing is not good news. Maybe it's bad news that I will find myself at the judgment seat of a holy, just, righteous God at the end of all days. And this is indeed where Solomon is taking us. He, he wants us to understand that we are all wicked and are standing before the perfect judgment of a perfect God. He describes it this way, verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. This is Solomon's creative version of there is no one righteous, no, not one. As he's reflecting on the fact that, that everyone dies, just like the animals. He's saying, well, that, that's proof. Everyone's dying. That, 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 that's proof that everyone is under condemnation for their wickedness. Think about, think, think about the logic here. right? He's, he's saying if the wages of unrighteous living is death, and everyone dies, then everyone must be unrighteous. Everyone must be wicked. And therefore, everyone is worthy of retributive justice on a cosmic scale. And this was laid out for the first time in Genesis chapter 3 on the heels of what's known as the fall of humanity. As Adam and Eve sinned against God and then were delivered the curse, the, the, the wrath for the sin, for the injustice, for the unrighteousness that they had committed against a holy God. He, he's linking what he's saying in Ecclesiastes with Genesis 3 at that verse 20. He says, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and dust shall return. Well, he's, if you've done any reading in, in Scripture and you've ever read through Genesis chapter 3, you know he, he, he's wanting you to think about Genesis chapter 3 where in the curse it says, By the sweat of your face and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Solomon wants us to understand that this vanity, this hevel that's being experienced in this life, even the, the hevel and the suffering of injustice and unrighteousness, that this is all the result of the fall of human beings, when human beings rejected God and sinned against Him. That human beings were, actually, they were created from the dust, but they were created to rule over the animals and to rule over the dust. 
And when human sin entered into the system, everything flipped on its head. In, in fact, it, it, I mean, a beast is, is ruling over Adam and Eve, right? The serpent is tempting Adam and Eve. And then they're told, you're from dust, but to dust you will return. The very dust that you were to be ruling over now is ruling over you. Now, there is hope in the midst of this. In 3.18, when he says, God is testing the children of man. That word translated testing is a Hebrew word, barar, and it means purifying, testing, polishing, cleansing, even choosing. And it's a, it's a little glimmer of hope in the midst of a very despairing passage. Where he's saying, God is working in the midst of this suffering, even suffering coming from injustice and unrighteousness. He's testing, he's purifying, he's drawing people to himself. It's interesting that I stumbled across some statistics about the level of faith in different generations and uh, among different races in the U.S. And what's interesting to, to look at is, is that African Americans in America are the most Christian racial group in our country, even in younger generations. Among millennials, African American millennials, 64% say they're very religious. That blows out any other racial group in the millennial category. You say, well, why is it? Why is it that that group seems to have more of a grasp on faith than any other group in the country? I think we have to say that at least in part that's resulting from some of the travail that they've been through as a people throughout American history. In the midst of, of that injustice, they've experienced the midst of of unrighteousness, that, that God has tested them, purified them, drawn them to himself. Now that is by no means an excuse for unjust ways that they've been treated throughout American history, but it is a glimpse of how God is testing, he is purifying, he is drawing people to himself in the midst of hevel, even hevel that is injustice and unrighteousness. And I think most of us, if, if we're Christ followers, probably part of our story of coming to faith in Jesus involves some pain. I, I think for most of us, our, our story is not, yeah, life was going really great, everything was perfect, and then I decided to follow Jesus. It's really not the usual story. The usual story is, I came to the end of myself. Something happened. Something I did, something was done to me, perhaps even something unjust, unrighteous that I did or someone did to me or some kind of toxic combination of both. And in the midst of that pain and struggle, God tested me. He purified me. He, he drew me out of that pain and struggle and drew me to faith in Christ. I'd say that's the that would be the typical typical story and the alternative is to just stay in life under the sun to not turn to the sovereign good God and merely 
Just try to make as much meaning out of this life as you possibly can. And this is what he's describing here, starting with verse 21. And again, he's, he's, he's shifting back and forth from sort of theologian to secularist. And here he's back in a secularist mode in 21. He says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? You know, this is a sort of a secular perspective. You're kind of agnostic about the afterlife. You're like, eh, maybe there is. I, d- I don't know. I just know I'm just going to make the best of this life. I'm going to eke out as much meaning as I can through my work or the fruit of my work. Maybe I'll get a sailboat. Maybe I'll get a summer house. Maybe I'll take some exotic vacations. I- I'll figure out a way to-, to get something out of my lot. But in, in the midst of that, he, he asks this-, this question, who can show you? What's on the other side? In other texts where he says, you know, you should enjoy your work and enjoy your life, he, he's always mentioned God and he's mentioned receiving these good things from God's hand and that if you do that, you can, you can have joy in your day-to-day living. But here he's more subtle and instead of saying, and it's God who's giving you these things, he's like, who could show you? Who could show you what's beyond? And of course the answer is God moving you from under the sun to under heaven. But again, he, he, he's drilling down into this, well, what, what is life like if you're just under the sun? And this, these next passages here are probably the most depressing in the whole book. Chapter 4, he just, he just keeps kind of reflecting under the sun about oppression. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed... They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and not has seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And so again, he's just he's describing, okay, you want to do life under the sun? You want, you, want, you want to just say this is all there is? Then, then this is the, the, the bottomless pit of despair where you're headed, right? And, and he, he's saying everyone is suffering. The oppressed are suffering, of course, and he sees their tears. But we know from Ecclesiastes, the oppressor is suffering. The people that have everything they need, they're suffering too. They're struggling with the meaning of life and the hevel that they experience day in and day out. Part of what Solomon is doing, he, he's, he's drilling down into the, the deepest need of the human soul. And, and, and he, he's saying mere money and power is, is not going to cure your, your plight. It's not. There's something deeper. There's something more and that God is testing human beings to get them to awaken to those realities. That money and power are, are not your end all, but, but that knowing the one true God, the sovereign good God, that is where ultimate hope is found. And if you don't find that, then life under the sun, again, is this bottomless pit of despair. And this is where he goes to this dark place where he, he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm like congratulating the dead people because they're better off than the living because it's so hard here. And then he's like, you know what, on second thought, I'm congratulating the, the people that never were born. They're better off, right? 
And again, why is he saying these things? He's saying these things because he's, he's reflecting on, okay, if life under the sun is all there is, then, then this is the foregone conclusion of absolute despair. But that's not all there is. <laughs> There's a sovereign good God using hevel, even hevel of injustice and unrighteousness, using that to, to purify, to, to, to draw men and women to himself. And, and he's, he's trying to draw the reader to that conclusion, with this, even with that question that I mentioned earlier, who can bring him to see what will be after him? The one who's beyond the sun. The one who came to reveal himself under the sun, right? This is part of the good news of Jesus Christ. So we don't have to wonder if there's some sovereign good God up there. Like, like he revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus Christ walked under the sun. But, but not only that, he, he lived a perfectly just and righteous life. And he did that not only to be an example to us, which certainly he is, but so that he could die in the place of wicked people like you and me who are not perfectly righteous and not perfectly just. And so when we accept what Christ has done for us on the cross, we are forgiven for that wickedness. We can stand at the judgment seat of God, not not because we've done something and we now are going to get our reward, but because we have now been forgiven and given mercy. And because of that, we can stand by God's grace before the judgment of God. And so if you've not yet received that mercy from the Lord, receive it today. It's a gift. It's it's not something to be grasped. It's something to be received as as a gift from God. And he's he's purchased it with his own death on the cross, died the death that you and I deserved in order to give us mercy, in order to give us this free gift of grace and forgiveness. But not only does it forgive us for our wickedness, for our injustice and our unrighteousness, but it also transforms us out of that, right? This grace not only forgives, but, but it's, it's making us new, and it's making us a new community, a community that is a community of justice and righteousness. This church, um, one of the ways it does that is by giving us a gospel-centered identity, this is one of the amazing things about the gospel, that, that, that it, it, it brings the downtrodden up. It brings the haughty down. And it creates this community of, of justice and righteousness. Think, think about it. If, if, if I'm looked down upon by this world because of the color of my skin or because I lack education in their eyes or because I don't have a lot of money or I'm, I'm from another country or, or what, whatever the category is that people are, are, are sizing me up and, and they're, they're saying, you're less than. And then I, I come to know the grace of Jesus Christ and I'm given a new identity and that identity is I, I, I'm a child of God. I, I'm a son, I'm a daughter of God through grace and, of the gospel. And I'm also a brother and sister with my fellow brothers and sisters in the church. And so I've been brought up. But if I'm haughty and prideful, the gospel brings me down. If I'm I'm walking around thinking, I'm better than other people. 
because of my skin color or because of my education or because I have some money or, or, or whatever. The gospel says, no, no, that, that identity is hevel. <laughs> that, that identity is, is not what you, you plant your life on. That's not your found. Your new identity now is that you are a child of God. You are a brother, a sister in Christ with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it creates this community, this uh, transformed community that is righteous, that is justice, and certainly a work in progress, right? We are this and we are becoming this on a regular basis, that God is transforming us to be this community that he intended of justice and righteousness. But it doesn't stop there. The, this community of justice and righteousness, the church, is also on a mission to bring justice and righteousness into the world. Again, Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, he, he says that the gospel creates the potential for a non-paternalistic partnership between people of different races, cultures, classes, all for accomplishing justice and righteousness in the world. So, so that bringing down the haughty, bringing up the downtrodden creates this potential for non-paternalistic. Right? So what he's getting at there is, I'm up here, you're down there. The, the gospel remedies that. And definitely among Christians, but also even between Christians and non-Christians. Because now Christians are looking through the lens of, well, this is my fellow image bearer. They have, a, they have dignity and worth. And, and so now it's not a paternalistic, let me do some charity for you. It's not like that. It's no, you're a fellow image bearer. And so, so now these partnerships can, can develop to bring about justice and righteousness in the world. And instead of an us-them now, it becomes this we. And I don't think this kind of thing can really happen outside the gospel. I mean, it can happen to some degree, but I'm, I'm telling you, it's by gospel grace that this can be actually formed in the hearts of people and then creates this community and this community on mission in the world. This, this mission, I know when we talk about this kind of mission of, of justice and, and righteousness, you just start to like, well, that's a big topic. What do we do? How, how do we even begin to engage in that? And uh, in this book, Generous Justice, which I would, I would recommend. It's, a, it's not that long. It's a pretty, pretty easy read. A great uh, read to, to just get a better vision of what, what is it, what's Christian uh, biblical justice look like? But he, Keller in his book, he, uh, he suggests these three ways that you engage in ministries of, of justice and, and righteousness in the world. And uh, I've kind of, these are my own words here, but, but um, here's the three categories. Relieve, restore, and reform. Relieve, restore, and reform. So relieve is you, you're giving direct aid to meet immediate needs. So somebody needs groceries. Somebody needs a, 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 you know, a place to lay their head. Somebody, somebody needs immediate medical care. It's, it's like a direct relief kind of of a thing, which I'd say also includes the gospel, right? Like the biggest direct relief that, that we need is, is the gospel. But, but it also it includes this giving of direct aid to needs that need to be met now. But there's also the, the sense of, of restore, right? This is, we might call this development, um, where the, we're helping a, an individual or family or a community move toward self-sufficiency 
by giving them opportunities. So this could be a micro business loan. This could be education. This could be legal assistance. Things that are going to help the person move forward in terms of getting self-sufficient in their lives. Um, This happens around here all the time. And it's oftentimes behind the scenes. This kind of work is not stuff you go, you put it on Facebook and say, look at us, how amazing we are, we're, we're helping this person. You, you don't do that, right? That's the whole paternalistic thing. But it does, it happens often. And as I was thinking about this, the relieve, the restore pieces, I was thinking about a student uh, several years ago that um, she had grown up in an immigrant family. She had fled that family because it was abusive when she was a teenager. Uh, she found herself in the foster system. She uh, was scary smart and did really well in school. And she, she got into UMass. And so here she is, kind of alone in the world, doing well at UMass, but she runs out of money. And so she starts couch surfing to different friends. And eventually she just kind of runs out of friends that are able to, to take care of her on, on their couches. And the landlord was like, you can't have a friend over for months, you know, like, get out. And so through some different relationships, we found out about the need. And so she needed relief to start with. And so she, she lived in our house for a little bit. Uh, and then we were able to put her in some housing here at the church and get her some groceries and get her room set up and just, just kind of get, get her, on her on her feet in terms of just immediate needs. But then it came to our attention that UMass was about to kick her out. And they were doing it because, because of some financial things. That she wasn't able to pay fully the, the tuition. And she was trying to get a meeting with, with some of the financial workers there at UMass. And for whatever reason, I don't know what the details were, but they were not meeting with her. They wouldn't meet with her. And so Melanie and I went up to, to UMass. And we showed up in the waiting room. And we were like, hey, we want to talk to so-and-so. In like 15 minutes, we were talking to so-and-so. And so we sat down and we talked about it. We figured out what she needed. She needed a bridge loan. Uh, to get back in school and to get back on, 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 on schedule in terms of her, her funding um, for school. And so we put our name on a loan so that she could get some funding and she could get back in school. In the course of that, she was hearing the gospel, right? She was coming to church. She was finding about, about Jesus. She professed her faith in Christ. Uh, she was baptized. Uh, she has, she's graduated. She's working. She's on her feet. But this is, what, this is what it looks like, right? This whole relief thing, restore thing. And it's incredibly messy. It's incredibly involved. It's incredibly sacrificial. It's, it's exactly what we see Jesus doing, right? He gets really involved. He gets really sacrificial. As he leans in to our plight and rescuing us and saving us, relieving the, the, the plight that we had no ability to remedy. The third one is, is reform, and this is more uh, on a systemic level. So holding uh, institutions accountable, working to change laws to make them more just and righteous. We, we hear a lot about that uh, of recent days. But that's, that's part of the picture, right? Not, not just relieve, not just restore, but also to reform. And part of, of what is driving that is, is that we know that we've been given mercy. <laughs> we've been given mercy by the perfectly just and perfectly righteous God through Christ and his death on the cross. And so that motivates us to then work for justice, work for righteousness. I think for most of us, 
probably the appropriate response to this sermon on, on justice and righteousness is, is probably more confession that we don't really care about this stuff. We, we honestly, we don't really care enough to like, actually get involved with it. I mean, we might post something or go to an event, but, but to actually lean in and, and bring relief to someone, to bring restoration to someone, myself included, okay? Oftentimes we're like, I, I don't think I want to get involved. I, I need to keep my boundaries. I, 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 you know, I've got a lot going on. I mean, I wish I could help that person, but, but I really can't lean in, right? And I think for most of us, we need to confess that to the Lord. Because, again, the, the gospel, it, it, it motivates us to lean in. Now, can we do everything? No. Does it take discernment? Yes. Do you have to prayerfully decide, okay, do I, do I lean into this? Do I not lean into this? Is, is this something that God's calling me to? I, yeah, all those footnotes, just hear those. But also realize that for most of us, I feel like we, we're just kind of trying to keep our life in a nice, orderly fashion. And when we see an opportunity to, to lean in, we, we oftentimes don't take it. And it is in those places where, where you're, you're most emulating the gospel. <laughs> right? I mean, we, we're reminded of this every time we come to this table. On the night in which Jesus is betrayed, then the night before his death, he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to them, his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Talk about relief work, right? He, he knew that there was nothing we could do to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and somehow alleviate our plight. He knew he would have to, to give relief. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me, not only was he saving individuals, but he was, he was creating a covenant community that would live just and righteous lives with each other, but also on mission in the world. This, this really is a, a solidarity moment when we come to this table and take the bread and the cup. What we're all saying, regardless of what our education is or isn't or how much money we have or not or what our race is. It, all of those things are secondary to this ultimate identity that we have as sinners saved by grace. And so it's a powerful moment of solidarity as we take the bread and we take the cup, remembering those truths. And then fueled by that, going out into the world and bringing justice and righteousness in Christ's name. So let's pray.